Section 8 of Harding's Luck. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Estenson. Harding's Luck by Edith Nesbitt. Chapter 5, Part 1 To Get Your Own Living. Now, said Mr. Beale, we ain't going to crack no more cribs. It's low, that's what it is. I quite grant you it's low, so I suppose we'll have to take the road again. Dickie and he were sitting in the sunshine on a sloping field. They had been sitting there all the morning, and Dickie had told Mr. Beale all his earthly adventures from the moment the red-headed man had lifted him up to the window of Talbot Court to the time when he had come in by the open door of the common lodging-house. "'What a nipper it is, though,' said Mr. Beale regretfully. "'For the burglaring, I mean. Sharp, clever, no one to touch him. But I don't cotton to it myself,' he added quickly. "'Not the burglaring, I don't. You're always liable to get yourself into trouble over it, one way or the other. That's the worst of it. I don't know how it is,' he ended pensively but somehow it always leads to trouble. Dickie picked up seven straws from among the stubble and idly plaited them together. The nurse had taught him this in the dream when he was still weak from the fever. "'That's very flash, that what you're doing,' said Beale. "'Who learned you that?' "'I learned it in a dream,' said Dickie slowly. "'I dreamed I had a fever.' and I'll tell you if you like. It's a good yarn, good as here ward very near. Beale lay back on the dry stubble, his pipe between his teeth. Fire away, he said, and Dickie fired away. When the long tale ended, the sun was beginning to go down towards its bed in the west. There was a pause. You'd make a tidy bit on the alls said Beale, quite awestruck. The things you think of! When did you make all that up? I dreamed it, I tell you, said Dickie. You always could stick it on, said Beale admiringly. I ain't going to stick it on never no more, said Dickie. They called it lying and cheating, where I was. In my dream, I mean. Once let a nipper out of your sight, said Mr. Beale sadly, and see what comes of it. No two are going to stick it on no more. Then how's us to get an honest living? Answer me that, young chap. I don't know, said Dickie, but we got to do it somehow. It ain't to be done, not with all the unemployment there is about, said Mr. Beale. Besides, you've got a regular gift for sticking it on. A talent, I call it, and now you won't throw it away. But you can't. We got to live. In the dream, said Dickie, there didn't seem to be no unemployed. Everyone was prenticed to a trade. I wish it was like that here. Well, it ain't, said Mr. Beale shortly. I wasn't never prenticed to no trade, no more'n what you'll be. Worse luck, said Dickie. But I started learning a lot of things, games mostly in the dream I did and I started making a boat. A galleon, they called it. All the names is different there. 
and I carved a little box, a fair treat it was, with my father's arms on it. Your father's what? Coat of arms. Gentlemen there all has different things, patterns like. They call them coats of arms, and they put it on their silver and their carriages and their furniture. Put what? Beale asked again. The blazon. All gentle people have it. Don't you come blazin' off over me, said Beale with a sudden fierceness, cause I won't have it, see? It's them bloomin' Talbots put all this rot in your head. The Talbots, said Dickie. Oh, the Talbots ain't been gentry more than a couple hundred years. Our family's as old as King Alfred. Stow it, I say, said Beale, more fiercely still. I see what you're after. You want us to part company. That's what you want. Well, go. Go back to your Talbots and be the nice lady's little boy with velvet kicksies and a clean anky once a week. That's what you do. Dickie looked forlornly out over the river. I can't help what I dreams, can I? He said. In the dream, I'd got lots of things. Uncles and aunts and a little brother. I never seen him, though and a father and a mother and all. It's different, here. I ain't got no but you, here, father. Well, then, said Beale more gently, what do you go setting yourself up again me for? I ain't, said Dickie. I thought you liked me to tell you everything. Silence. Dickie could not help noticing the dirty shirt, the dirty face, the three days' beard, the filthy clothes of his friend, and he thought of his other friend, Sebastian of the docks. He saw the pale, blue, reproachful eyes of Beale looking out of that dirty face, and he spoke aloud, quite without meaning to. "'All that don't make no difference,' he said. "'Eh,' said Beale, with miserable, angry eyes. Look here, said Dickie desperately. I'm going to show you. This ear's my tinkler. What I told you about. What pawns for a bob. I wouldn't show it to no one but you. Swelp me, I wouldn't. He held the little rattle out. Beale took it. It's a fancy bit, I will say, he owned. Look here, said Dickie. What I mean to say. He stopped. What was the use of telling Beale that he had come back out of the dream, just for his sake? Beale, who did not believe in the dream, did not understand it, hated it. Don't you go turning again me, he said. Whether I dream or not, you and me'll stand together. I'm not going to do things what's wrong. Low, dirty tricks, so I ain't. But I knows we can get on without that. What would you like to do for a living if you would choose? I weren't never put to no trade, said Beale, except being Andy with a horse. I was a Wagner's mate when I was a boy. I likes a horse, or dog, he added. Ain't no good with me hands. Not at working, you know, not to say working. Dickie suppressed a wild notion that he had of getting into that dream again, learning some useful trade there and waking up and teaching it to Mr. Beale. "'Ain't there nothing else you'd like to do?' he asked. "'I don't know as there is. 
said Mr. Beale drearily. Without it was pigeons. Then Dickie wondered whether things that you learned in dreams would stay learned, things you learned to do with your hands. The Greek and Latin stayed learned right enough and sang in his brain encouragingly. Don't you get shirty if I talk about that dream, he said. You don't know what a dream it was. I wasn't kidding you. I did dream it, honor bright. I dreamed I could carve wood, make boxes and things. I wish I'd add a bit of fine green wood. I'd like to try. I've got the knife they give me to cut the string of the basket in the train. It's jolly sharp. What sort of wood? Beale asked. It was mahogany I dreamed I made my box with, said Dickie. I would like to try. Off his poor chump, Beale murmured with bitter self-reproach. My doing, too, putting him onto a job like Talbot Corp, the nipper is. He stretched himself and got up. I'll get you a bit of mahogany from somewheres, he said very gently. I didn't mean nothing, old chap. You keep all on about your dreams. I don't mind. I likes it. Let's get a brace of kippers and make a night of it. So they went back to the Gravesend lodging house. Next day, Mr. Beale produced the lonely leg of a sofa, mahogany, a fat, round-turned leg, old and seasoned. This what you want? he asked. Dickie took it eagerly. I do wonder if I can, he said. I feel just exactly as if I could. I say, Farver, let's get out in the woods somewheres quiet and take our grub along, somewheres where nobody can't say, What you up to, and make a mock of me. They found a place such as Dickie desired, a warm, sunny nest in the heart of a green wood, and all through the long, warm hours of the autumn day, Mr. Beale lay lazily in the sunshine, while Dickie, very pale and determined, sliced, chipped, and picked at the sofa leg with the knife the gardener had given him. It was hard to make him lay the work down, even for dinner, which was of a delicious and extravagant kind, new bread, German sausage, and beer in a flat bottle. For the moment, when the knife touched the wood, Dickie knew that he had not forgotten, and that what he had done in the Deptford dockyard, under the eyes of Sebastian, the shipwright who had helped to sink the armada, he could do now alone in the woods beyond Gravesend. It was after dinner that Mr. Beale began to be interested. Swelp me, he said, but you've got the hang of it somehow. A box, ain't it? A box, said Dicky, smoothing a rough corner. A box with a lid that fits, and I'll carve our arms on the top, see? I've left that bit sticking up a purpose. It was the hardest day's work Dicky had ever done. He stuck to it, and he stuck to it and stuck to it, till there was hardly light left to see it by. But before the light was wholly gone, the box had wholly come with the carved coat of arms and the lid that fitted. Well, 
said Mr. Beale, striking a match to look at it. If that ain't a fair treat, there's many a swell bloke who'd give half a dollar for that to put its back in. You've got a trade, my son, that's sure. Why didn't you let on before as you could? Blow the beastly match, it's burned me finger. The match went out, and Beale and Dickie went back to supper in the crowded, gas-lit room. When supper was over, it was tripe and onions and fried potatoes, very luxurious, Beale got up and stood before the fire. "'I'm going to have a auction, I am,' he said to the company at large. "'Here's a thing and a very pretty thing, a backy-box or a snuff-box or a box to shut your gold money in or your diamonds. What offers?' "'And eat round,' said a black-brown woman with a basket covered in American cloth, no blacker than her eyes. "'That I will,' said Beale readily. "'I'll and it round in me and, and I'll do the and in myself.' He took it around from one to another, showed the neat corners, the neat carving, the neat fit of the square lid. "'Where'd you nick that?' asked a man with a red handkerchief. "'The nipper made it.' "'Pinched it more likely,' someone said. "'I seen him make it,' said Beale, frowning a little. "'Let me have a squint,' said a dingy gray old man sitting apart. For some reason of his own, Beale let the man take the box into his hand, but he kept very close to him and kept his eyes on the box. "'All out of one piece,' said the old man. "'I don't know who made it. I don't care.' But that was made by a workman as knows his trade. I was a cabinet-maker once, though. You wouldn't think it to look at me. There ain't nobody here to pay what that little object's worth. Boil it up with a drop of cold linseed and leave it all night. And then in the morning, you rub it on your trouser leg to shine it, and then rub it in the mud to dirty it, and then oil it all again and dirty it again, and you'll get off a thicken for it, as genuine old antique. That's what you do. Thank you, Daddy, said Beale, and so I will. He slipped the box in his pocket. When Dickie next saw the box, it looked as old as any box need look. Now we'll look out for the shop where they sell these air old antiques, said Beale. They were on the road and their faces were set towards London. Dickie's face looked pinched and white. Beale noticed it. "'You don't look up too much,' he said. "'Want your bed to your liking?' "'The bed was all right,' said Dickie, thinking of the bed in the dream. "'I didn't sleep much, though.' "'Any more dreams?' Beale asked kindly enough. "'No,' said Dickie. I think perhaps it was me wantin' so to dream it again kept me wake. I see, said Beale, picking up a straw to chew. Dickie limped along in the dust. The world seemed very big and hard. It was a long way to London, and he had not been able to dream that dream again. Perhaps he would never be able to dream it. He stumbled on a big stone and would have fallen, but that Beale caught him by the arm, and as he swung round by that arm, Beale saw the boy's eyes were thick with tears. 
ain't hurt yourself, have you? he said, for in all their wanderings these were the first tears Dickie had shed. No, said Dickie, and hid his face against Beale's coat sleeve. It's only... Well, is it then, said Beale, in the accents of long, disused tenderness, tell your old father then. It's silly, sobbed Dickie. You never mind whether it's silly or not, said Beale. You out with it. In that dream, said Dickie, I wasn't lame. Think of that now, said Beale admiringly. You best dream that every night, then you won't mind so much of a daytime. But I mind more, said Dickie, sniffing hard, much, much more. Beale, without more words, made room for him in the crowded perambulator, and they went on. Dickie's sniff subsided. Silence. Presently, I say, father, I'm sorry I acted so silly. You never see me blub before, and you won't again, he said. And Beale said awkwardly, That's all right, mate. You pretty flush? the boy asked later on. Not so dusty, said the man. "'Cause I want to give that there little box to a chap I know what let me the money for the train to come to you at Gravesend. "'Pay him some other day when we're flusher.' "'I'd rather pay him now,' said Dickie. "'I could make another box. "'There's a bit of the sofa leg left, ain't there?' "'There was, and Dickie worked away at it in the odd moments that cluster round mealtimes, the half-hours before bed, and before the morning start.' Mr. Beale begged of all likely foot-passengers, but he noted that the nipper no longer stuck it on. For the most part, he was quite silent. Only when Beale appealed to him would he say, "'Father's very good to me. I don't know what I should do without father.' And so at last they came to New Cross again, and Mr. Beale stepped in for a pint at the railway hotel while Dickie went clickety-clack along the pavement to his friend, the pawnbroker. "'Here we are again,' said the tradesman. "'Come to pawn the rattle?' Dickie laughed. Pawning the rattle seemed suddenly to have become a very old good joke between them. "'Look here, mister,' he said. "'That chink what you let me to get to Gravesend with.' He paused and added in his other voice, It was very good of you, sir. I'm not going to lend you any more, if that's what you're after, said the Jew, who had already reproached himself for his confiding generosity. It's not that I'm after, said Dickie with dignity. Oh, I wish to repay you. Got the money, said the Jew, laughing, not unkindly. No, said Dickie. But I've got this. He handed the little box across the counter. Where'd you get it? I made it. The pawnbroker laughed again. Well, well, I'd ask no questions, and you'll tell me no lies, eh? I shall certainly tell you no lies, said Dickie, with the dignity of the dream boy who was not a cripple and was heir to a great and gentle name. Will you take it instead of the money? The pawnbroker turned the box over in his hands, 
while kindness and honesty struggled fiercely within him against the habits of a business life. Dickie eyed the china vases and concertinas and teaspoons tied together in a fan shape and waited silently. It's worth more than I lent you, the man said at last with an effort, and it isn't every one who would own to that, mind you. I know it isn't, said Dickie. Will you please take it to pay my debt to you, and if it is worth more, accept it as a grateful gift from one who is still gratefully your debtor. You'd make a fortune on the halls, said the man, as Beale had said. The way you talk beats everything, all serene. I'll take the box in full discharge of your debt, but you might as well tell me where you got it. I made it said Dickie, and put his lips together very tightly. You did, did you? Then I'll tell you what. I'll give you four bob for every one of them that you make and bring to me. You might do different coats of arms. See? I was only taught to do one, said Dickie. Just then a customer came in, a woman with her Sunday dress and a pair of sheets to pawn, because her man was out of work and the children were hungry. "'Run along now,' said the Jew. "'I've nothing more for you to-day.' Dickie flushed and went. Three days later the crutch clattered at the pawnbroker's door, and Dickie laid two more little boxes on the counter. "'Here you are,' he said. The pawnbroker looked and exclaimed and questioned and wondered, and Dickie went away with eight silver shillings in his pocket the first coins he had ever carried in his life. They seemed to have been coined in some fairy mint. They were so different from any other money he had ever handled. Mr. Beale, waiting for him by New Cross Station, put his empty pipe in his pocket and strolled down to meet him. Dickie drew him down a side street and held out the silver. Two days' work,' he said. "'We ain't no call to take the road set for a pleasure trip. "'I got a trade. Oh, "'I have. "'How much a week? Four bob a day. Twenty-four bob I make.' "'Lor!' said Beale, with his mouth opened. "'Now I tell you what. "'You get old some more old sophie legs "'and a stone and a strap to sharpen my knife with.' And there we are. Twenty-four shillings a week for a chap, and his nipper ain't so dusty farver, is it? I'd thought it all up and settled it all out. So long as the weather holds, we'll sleep in the bed with the green curtains, and I'll have a green wood for my workshop. And when the nights get cold, we'll rent a room of our very own and live like tofts, won't us? The child's eyes were shining with excitement. End of chapter 5, part 1